Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Today we are reading the first chapter of the 1956 story Planet Explorer by Murray Leinster. Murray Leinster, born June 16, 1896, died June 8, 1975, was a pen name of William Fitzgerald Jenkins, an American writer of genre fiction, particularly of science fiction. He wrote and published more than 1,500 short stories and articles, 14 movie scripts, and hundreds of radio scripts and television plays. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by The Sleep Channel on Spotify. Worlds and Worlds Eons from now, man will hurtle through the void in gravity-defying ships across light years of distance to far-flung planets, and more staggering yet, he will colonize these islands in the unimaginably vast ocean of space. There will be worlds, and worlds, such as Lonnie 3, a glacier land warmed by man. Kosa 2, a shining desert made green by man. Loren 2, an inferno of beasts, tamed by man. The fascinating, heroic story of a trailblazer to the unknown Outer Space Service Officer Boardman who uses incredible knowledge and skill to make the star-flung outposts of civilization ready to receive new, vast surges of humanity. Solar Constant Boardman waked that morning when the partly open port of his sleeping cabin closed of itself and the room warmer began to whir. He found himself burrowed deep under his covering, and when he got his head out of it the already bright room was bitterly cold and his breath made a fog about his head. He thought uneasily it's colder than yesterday. But a senior colonial survey officer is not supposed to let himself seem disturbed in public, and the only way to follow that rule is to follow it in private too. So Boardman composed his features while gloom filled him. When one has just received senior service rating and is on one's very first independent survey of a new colonial installation, the unexpected can be appalling. The unexpected was definitely here on Lonnie 3. He'd been a survey candidate on Kali 2 and Terret and Aripa 1, all of which were tropical, and a junior officer on Nini's 3 and Thotmes, one a semi-arid planet and the other temperate volcanic, and he'd done an assistant job on Cyril's solitary world, which was nine-tenths water. But this first independent survey on his own was another matter. Everything was wholly unfamiliar. An ice planet with a minus 0.1 habitability rating was upsetting in its peculiarities. 
He knew what the book said about glacial world conditions, but that was all. The denseness of the fog his breath made seemed to grow less as the room warmer word and word. When by the thinness of the mist he guessed the temperature to be not much under freezing, he climbed out of his bunk and went to the port to look out. His cabin, of course, was in one of the drone halls that had brought the colony's equipment to Lonnie 3. The other emptied hulls were precisely ranged in order outside. They were connected by tubular galleries and painstakingly leveled. They gave an impression of impassioned tidiness among the upheaved, ice-coated mountains all about. He gazed down the long valley in which the colony lay. There were monstrous slanting peaks on either side that partly framed the morning sun. Their flanks were ice. The sky was pale and the sun had for sun dogs geometrically about it. Normal post-midnight temperatures in this valley ranged around 10 below zero and this was technically summer. But it was colder than 10 below zero now. At noon there were normally tiny trickling rills of surface though running down the sunlit sides of the mountains but they froze again at night. And this was a sheltered valley warmer than most of the planet's surface. The sun had its sun dogs every day on rising. There were nights when the brighter planets had star pops too. The foam plate lighted and dimmed and lighted and dimmed. They did themselves well on Lonnie 3. The parent world was in the same solar system, making supply easy. That was rare. Boardman stood before the plate and it cleared. Herndon's face peered unhappily out of it. He was even younger than Boardman and inclined to lean on the supposedly vast experience of a senior officer of the Colonial Survey. Well, said Boardman, feeling undignified in his sleeping garments. We're picking up a beam from home, said Herndon anxiously. But we can't make it out. Because the third planet of the Sun Lani was being colonized from the second inhabited world, communication with the colony's base was possible. A tight beam could span a distance which was only light minutes across at conjunction and not much over a light hour at opposition as now. But the beam communication had been broken for the past few weeks and shouldn't be possible again for some weeks more. The sun lay between. One wouldn't expect normal sound and picture transmission until the parent planet had moved past the scrambler fields of Lonnie. But something had come through. It would be reasonable for it to be pretty much hash when it arrived. They aren't sending words or pictures, said Herndon. The beam is wobbly and we don't know what to make of it. It's a signal, all right, and on the regular frequency. But there are all sorts of stray noises and still in the midst of it there's some sort of signal we can't make out. It's like a whine, only it stutters. It's a broken up sound of one pitch. Boardman rubbed his chin. 
He remembered a course in information theory just before he graduated from the service academy. Signals were made by pulses, pitch changes, and frequency variations. Information was what couldn't be predicted without information. And he remembered with gratitude a seminar on the history of communication just before he'd gone out on his first field job as a survey candidate. Hum, he said with a trace of self-consciousness. Those noises, the stuttering ones. Would they be, on the whole, of no more than two different durations? Like humdut, bzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzz
the climate had been such that even human-supplied life looked dubious. Boardman slipped on his colonial survey uniform with its palm tree insignia. Nothing could be much more inappropriate than palm tree symbols on a planet with 60 feet of permafrost. Boardman reflected, the construction gang calls it a blast instead of a tree because we blow up when they try to dodge specifications. But specifications have to be met. You can't bet the lives of a colony or even a ship's crew on half-built facilities. He marched down the corridor from his sleeping room with the dignity he tried to maintain for the sake of the colonial survey. It was a pretty lonely business being dignified all the time. If Herndon didn't look so respectful, it would have been pleasant to be more friendly. But Herndon revered him. Even his sister, Ricky. But Boardman put her firmly out of his mind. He was on Lonnie 3, which had very valuable mineral resources that made colonization worthwhile to check and approve the colony installations. There was the giant landing grid for spaceships, which took power from the ionosphere to bring space vessels gently to the ground and also to supply the colony's power needs. It likewise lifted visiting spacecraft the necessary five planetary diameters out when they took off again. There was power storage in the remote event of disaster to that giant device. There was a food reserve and the necessary resources for its indefinite stretching in case of need. That usually meant hydroponic installations. All these things had had to be finished, operable, and inspected by a duly qualified colonial survey officer before the colony could be licensed for unlimited use. It was all very normal and official but Boardman was the newest senior survey officer on the list and this was the first of his independent operations. He felt inadequate at times. He passed through the vestibule between this drone hall and the next and went directly to Herndon's office. Herndon, like himself, was newly endowed with authority. He was actually a mining and minerals man and a youthful prodigy in that field, but when the director of the colony was taken ill while a supply ship was aground, he went back to the home planet and command devolved on Herndon. I wonder, thought Boardman, if he feels as shaky as I do. When he entered the office, Herndon sat listening to a literal hash of noises coming out of a speaker on his desk. The cryptic signal had been relayed to him and a recorder stored it as it came. There were cacklings and squeals and moaning sounds, sputters and rumbles and growls. But behind the facade of confusion there was a tiny, interrupted, high-pitched noise. It was a monotone whining not to be confused with the random sounds accompanying it. Sometimes it faded almost to inaudibility, and sometimes it was sharp and clear. But it was a distinctive sound in itself, and it was made up of short whines and longer ones of two durations only. I've put Ricky at making a transcription of what we've got, said Herndon with relief as he saw Boardman.
She'll make short marks for the short sounds and long ones for the long. I've told her to try to separate the groups. We've got a full half hour of it already. Boardman made an inspired guess. I would expect it to be the same message repeated over and over, he said. He added, and I think it would be decoded by guessing at the letters in two-letter and three-letter words as clues to longer ones. That's quicker than statistical analysis of frequency. Herndon instantly pressed buttons under his phone plate. He relayed the information to his sister as if it were gospel. But it wasn't, Boardman remembered. It's simply a trick remembered from boyhood when I was interested in secret languages. My interest faded when I realized I had no secrets to record or transmit. Herndon turned from the phone plate. Ricky says she's already learned to recognize some groups, he reported, but thanks for the advice. Now what? Boardman sat down. It seems to me, he observed, that the increased cold out here might not be local. Sunspots. Herndon wordlessly handed over a sheet of paper with observation figures on top and a graph below them which related the observations to each other. They were the daily, at first routine, measurements of the solar constant from Lonnie 3. The graph line almost ran off the paper at the bottom. To look at this, he admitted, you'd think the sun was going out. Of course it can't be, he added hastily. Not possibly. But there is an extraordinary number of sunspots. Maybe they'll clear. But meanwhile the amount of heat reaching us is dropping. As far as I know, there's no parallel for it. Night temperatures are 30 degrees lower than they should be. Not only here either, but at all the robot weather stations that have been spotted around the planet. They average 40 below zero minimum instead of 10. And there is that terrific lot of sunspots. Boardman frowned. Sunspots are things about which nothing can be done. Yet the habitability of a borderline planet, anyhow, could very well depend on them. An infinitesimal change in sun heat can make a serious change in any planet's temperature. In the books, the ancient mother planet Earth was said to have entered glacial periods through a drop of only 3 degrees in the planet-wide temperature and to have been tropic almost to its poles from a rise of only six. It had been guessed that those changes on the planet where humanity began had been caused by a coincidence of sunspot maxima. Lonnie 3 was already glacial to its equator. Sunspots could account for worsening conditions here, perhaps. That message from the inner planet could be bad, thought Boardman, if the solar constant drops and stays down a while. But aloud he said, there couldn't be a really significant permanent change. Not quickly, anyhow.
Lonnie's a soul-type star, and they aren't variables, though of course any dynamic system like a sun will have cyclic modifications of one sort or another. But they usually cancel out. He sounded encouraging, even to himself. There was a stirring behind him. Ricky Herndon had come silently into her brother's office. She looked pale. She put some papers down on the desk. That's true, she said. But while cycles sometimes cancel, sometimes they enhance each other. They had herodyne. That's what's happening. Boardman scrambled to his feet, flushing. Herndon said sharply, What? Where'd you get that stuff, Ricky? She nodded at the sheaf of papers she just laid down. That's the news from home. She nodded again to Boardman. You were right. It was the same message, repeated over and over. And I decoded it like children decode each other's secret messages. I did that to Ken once. He was 12, and I decoded his diary, and I remember how angry he was that I'd found out he didn't have any secrets. She tried to smile. But Herndon wasn't listening. He read swiftly. Boardman saw that the undersheets were rows of dots and dashes, painstakingly transcribed and then decoded. There were letters under each group of marks. Herndon was very white when he'd finished. He handed the sheet to Boardman. Ricky's handwriting was precise and clear. Boardman read, For your information, the solar constant is dropping rapidly due to coincidence of cyclic variations in sunspot activity with previous unobserved long cycles apparently increasing the effect maximum is not yet reached and it is expected that this planet will become uninhabitable for a time already killing frosts have destroyed crops in summer hemisphere it is improbable that more than a small part of the population can be sheltered and warmed through developing glacial conditions which will reach to equator in 200 days the cold conditions are computed to last 2000 days before normal solar constant recurs this information is sent you to advise immediate development of hydroponic food supply and other precautions message ends for your information the solar constant is dropping rapidly due to coincidence of cyclic Boardman looked up. Herndon's face was ghastly, Boardman said. Kent 4 is the nearest world your planet could hope to get help from. A mail liner will make it in two months. Kent 4 might be able to send three ships to get here in two months more. That's no good. He felt sick. Human inhabited planets are far apart. There is on an average between four and five light years of distance between suns, two months spaceship journey apart. And not all stars are soul type or have inhabited planets. Colonized worlds are like isolated islands in an unimaginably vast ocean and the ships that ply between them at dirty light speeds seem merely to creep.
In ancient days on the mother planet Earth, men sailed for months between ports in their clumsy sailing ships. There was no way to send messages faster than they could travel. Nowadays there was little improvement. News of the Lani disaster could not be transmitted. It had to be carried as between stars and carriage was slow and response to news of disaster was no faster. The inner planet, Lani too, had 20 million inhabitants as against the 300 people in the colony on Lani 3. The outer planet was already frozen, but there would be glaciation on the inner world in 200 days. Glaciation and human life are practically exclusive. Human beings can survive only so long as food and power hold out, and shelter against really bitter cold cannot be quickly improvised for 20 million people. And, of course, there could be no help on any adequate scale. News of the need for it would travel too slowly. It would take five Earth years to get a thousand ships to Lani too, and a thousand ships could not rescue more than one percent of the population. But in five years, there would not be nearly so many people left alive. Our people, said Ricky in a thin voice, all of them. Mother and father and the others. All our friends. Home is going to be like that. She jerked her head toward a port which let in the frigid colony world's white daylight. Boardman was aware of an extreme unhappiness on her account. For himself, of course, the tragedy was less. He had no family and very few friends. But he could see something that had not occurred to them as yet. Of course, he said, it's not only their trouble. If the solar constant is really dropping like that, things out here will be pretty bad, too. A lot worse than they are now. We'll have to get to work to save ourselves. Ricky did not look at him. Boardman bit his lips. It was plain that their own fate did not concern them immediately. When one's homeworld is doomed, one's personal safety seems a trivial matter. There was silence save for the cackling, confused noises that came out of the speaker on Herndon's desk. We, said Boardman, are right now in the conditions they'll face a good long time from now. Herndon said dully. We couldn't live here without supplies from home. Or even without the equipment we brought. But they can't get supplies from anywhere, and they can't make such equipment for everybody. They'll die. He swallowed. They, they know it, too. So they warn us to try to save ourselves, because they can't help us anymore. There are many reasons why a man can feel shame that he belongs to a race, which can do the things that some men do. But sometimes there are reasons to be proud, as well. The home world of this colony was doomed, but it sent a warning to the tiny colony so that they could try to save themselves. I wish we were there to, 
Share what they have to face, said Ricky. Her voice sounded as if her throat hurt. I don't want to keep on living if everybody who ever cared about us is going to die. Boardman felt lonely. He could understand that nobody would want to live as the only human alive. Nobody would want to live as a member of the only group of people left alive. And everybody thinks of his home planet as all the world there is. I don't think that way, thought Boardman. But maybe it's the way I'd feel about living if Ricky were to die. It would be natural to want to share any danger or any disaster she faced. A look, he said, stammering a little. You don't see. It isn't a case of your living while they die. If your home world becomes like this, what will this be like? We're farther from the sun, colder to start with. Do you think we'll live through anything they can't take? Food supplies or no, equipment or no, do you think we've got a chance? Use your brains. Herndon and Ricky stared at him. And then some of the strained look left Ricky's face and body. Herndon blinked and said slowly, Why, that's so? We were thought to be taking a terrific risk when we came here. But it'll be as much worse here. Of course. We are in the same fix they're in. He straightened a little. Color actually came back into his face. Ricky managed to smile. And then Herndon said almost naturally. That makes things look more sensible. We've got to fight for our lives too. And we've very little chance of saving them. What do we do about it, Boardman? The sun was halfway toward mid-sky, still attended by its sun dogs, though they were fainter than at the horizon. The sky was darker. The icy mountain peaks reached skyward, serene and utterly aloof from the affairs of men. The city was a fleet of metal hulks, neatly arranged on the valley floor, emptied of the material they had brought for the building of the colony. Not far away, the landing grid stood. It was a gigantic skeleton of steel, rising from legs of unequal length bedded in the hillsides and reaching 2,000 feet toward the stars. Human figures, muffled almost past recognition, moved about a catwalk three-quarters of the way up. There was a tiny glittering below where they moved. The men were using sonic icebreakers to shatter the frost which formed on the framework at night. Falling shards of crystal made a liquid-like flashing. The landing grid needed to be cleared every ten days or so. Left uncleared, it would acquire an increasingly thick coating of ice and in time it could collapse. But long before that time it would have ceased to operate and without its operation there could be no space travel. Rockets for lifting spaceships were impossibly heavy for practical use. 
but the landing grids could lift them out to the unstressed space where Lawler drives could work and draw them to ground with cargoes they couldn't possibly have carried if they'd needed rockets. Boardman reached the base of the grid on foot. He was dwarfed by the ground-level upright beams. He went through the cold lock to the small control house at the grid's base. He nodded to the man on standby as he got out of his muffling garments. Everything all right? He asked. The standby operator shrugged. Boardman was colonial survey. It was his function to find fault, to expose inadequacies in the construction and operation of colony facilities. It's natural for me to be disliked by men whose work I inspect, thought Boardman. If I approve it doesn't mean anything, and if I protest, it's bad. I think, he said, that there ought to be a change in maximum no-drain voltage. I'd like to check it. The operator shrugged again. He pressed buttons under a foam plate. Shift to reserve power, he commanded, when a face appeared in the plate. Gotta check no drain juice. What for? demanded the face in the plate. You know who's got ideas, said the grid operator scornfully. Maybe we've been skimping something. Maybe there's some new specification we didn't know about. Maybe anything. But shift to reserve power. The face in the screen grumbled. Boardman swallowed. It was not a survey officer's privilege to maintain discipline. And anyhow, there was no particular virtue in discipline here and now. He watched the current demand dial. It stood a little above normal day drain, which was understandable. The outside temperature was down. There was more power needed to keep the dwellings warm, and there was always a lot of power needed in the mine the colony had been formed to exploit. The mine had to be warmed for the men who worked to develop it. The current demand needle dropped abruptly, hung steady, and dropped again and again as additional parts of the colony's power uses were switched to reserve. The needle hit bottom. It stayed there. Boardman had to walk around the standby men to get at the voltmeter. It was built around standard, old-fashioned vacuum tubes and tested it. He pushed in the contact plugs, read the no-drain voltage, licked his lips, and made a note. He reversed the leads so it would read backward. He took another reading. He drew in his breath very quietly. Now I want the power turned on in sections, he told the operator. The mine first, maybe. It doesn't matter. But I want to get voltage readings at different power takeoffs. The operator looked pained. He spoke with unnecessary elaboration to the face in the phone plate and grudgingly went through the process by which Boardman measured the successive drops in voltage with power drawn from the ionosphere. 
The current available from a layer of ionized gas is, in effect, the current flow through a conductor with marked resistance. It is possible to infer a gas's ionization from the current it yields. The cold locked door opened. Ricky Herndon came in, panting a little. There's another message from home, she said sharply. Her voice seemed strained. They picked up our answering beam and are giving the information you asked for. I'll be along, said Boardman. I just got some information here. He got into his cold garments again and followed her out of the control hut. The figures from home aren't good, said Ricky when mountains visibly rose on every hand around them. Ken says they're much worse than he thought. The rate of decline in the solar constants worse than we figured or could believe. I see, said Boardman inadequately. It's absurd, said Ricky angrily. There've been sunspots and sunspot cycles all along. I learned about them in school. I learned about a four-year and a seven-year cycle and that there were others. They should have known, they should have calculated in advance. Now they talk about 60-year cycles coming in with a 130-year cycle to pile up with all the others. What's the use of scientists if they don't do their work right and 20 million people die of it? Boardman did not consider himself a scientist, but he winced. Ricky raged as they moved over the slippery ice. Her breath was an intermittent cloud about her shoulders and there was white frost on the front of her cold garments. Even so quickly, the moisture of her breath congealed. He held out his hand quickly as she slipped, once. But they'll beat it, said Ricky in a sort of angry pride. They're starting to build more landing grids back home. Hundreds of them. Not for ships to land by, but to draw power from the ionosphere. They figure that one ship-sized grid can keep nearly three square miles of ground warm enough to live on. They'll roof over the streets of cities and pile snow on top for insulation. Then they'll plant food crops in the streets and gardens and do what hydroponic growing they can. They're afraid they can't do it fast enough to save everybody, but they'll try. Boardman clenched his hands inside their bulky mittens. Well, demanded Ricky, won't that do the trick? No. Why not? I just took readings on the grid, here. The voltage and the conductivity of the layer we draw power from both depend on ionization. When the intensity of sunlight drops, the voltage drops and the conductivity drops too. It's harder for less power to flow to the area the grid can tap and the voltage pressure is lower to drive it. Don't say any more, cried Ricky. Not another word. Boardman was silent. They went down the last small slope and past the opening of the mine, a great drift which bored straight into the mountain. 
Looking into it, they saw the twin rows of brilliant roof lights going toward the heart of the stony monster. They had almost reached the village when Ricky said in a stifled voice, How bad is it? Very, admitted Boardman. We have here the conditions the home planet will have in 200 days. Originally we could draw less than a fifth the power they count on from a grid on Lonnie 2. Ricky ground her teeth. Go on, she said. Ionization here is down 10%, said Boardman. That means the voltage is down somewhat more. A great deal more. And the resistance of the layer is greater. Very much greater. When they need power most on the home planet, they won't draw more from a grid than we do now. It won't be enough. They reached the village. There were steps to the cold lock of Herndon's office hall. They were ice-free because like the village walkways they were warm to keep frost from depositing on them. Boardman made a mental note. In the cold lock, the warm air pouring in was almost stifling. Ricky said defiantly, You might as well tell me now. We usually can draw one-fifth as much power here as the same sized grid would yield on your home world, he said. We are drawing, call it 60% of normal. A shade over one-tenth of what they expect to draw when the real cold hits them. Their estimates are nine times too high. One grid won't warm three square miles of city. About a third of one is closer. But... That won't be the worst, said Ricky in a choked voice. Is that right? How much good will a grid do? Boardman did not answer. The inner cold lock door opened. Herndon sat at his desk, even paler than before, listening to the hash of noises that came out of the speaker. He tapped on the desktop, quite unconscious of the action. He looked almost desperately at Boardman. Did she tell you? He asked in a numb voice. They hoped to save maybe half the population. All the children anyhow. They won't, said Ricky bitterly. Better go transcribe the new stuff that's come in, said her brother. We might as well know what it says. Ricky went out of the office. Boardman shed his cold garments. He said, The rest of the colony doesn't know what's up yet. The operator at the grid didn't certainly. But they have to know. We'll post the messages on the bulletin board, said Herndon. I wish I could keep it from them. It's not fun to live with. I might as well not tell them just yet. To the contrary, insisted Boardman. They've got to know right away. You're going to issue orders and they'll need to understand how urgent they are. Herndon looked hopeless. 
What's the good of doing anything? When Boardman frowned, he added, seriously, is there any use? You're all right. A survey ship's due to take you away. It's not coming because they know there's something wrong, but because your job should be finished about now. But it can't do any good. It would be insane for it to land at home. It couldn't carry away more than a few dozen refugees, and there are 20 million people who are going to die. It might offer to take some of us, but I don't think many of us would go. I wouldn't. I don't think Ricky would. I don't see. What we've got right here, said Herndon, is what they're going to have back home. And worse. But there's no chance for us to keep alive here. You are the one who pointed it out. I've been figuring, and the way the solar constant curve is going, I plotted it from the figures they gave us. It couldn't possibly level out until the oxygen, anyhow, is frozen out of the atmosphere here. We aren't equipped to stand anything like that, and we can't get equipped. There isn't equipment to let us stand it indefinitely. Anyhow, the maximum cold conditions will last 2,000 days back home, 6 Earth years. And there'll be storage of cold in frozen oceans and piled up glaciers. It'll be 20 years before home will be back to normal in temperature and the same here. Is there any point in trying to live, just barely to survive? for 20 years before there'll be a habitable planet to go back to? Boardman said irritably. Don't be a fool. Doesn't it occur to you that this planet is a perfect experiment station 200 days ahead of the home world where ways to beat the whole business can be tried? If we can beat it here, they can beat it there. Herndon said. Can you name one thing to try here? Yes, snapped Boardman. I want the walk heaters and the step heaters outside turned off. They use power to keep walkways clear of frost and doorsteps not slippery. I want to save that heat. Herndon said, and when you've saved it, what will you do with it? Put it underground to be used as needed, Boardman said. Store it in the mine. I want to put every heating device we can contrive to work in the mine to heat the rock. I want to draw every what the grid will yield and warm up the inside of the mountain while we can draw power to do it with. I want the deepest part of the mine too hot to enter. We'll lose a lot of heat, of course. It's not like storing electric power. But we can store heat now, and the more we store the more will be left when we need it. Herndon thought. Presently, he stirred slightly. Do you know, that is an idea? He looked up. Back home, there was a shale oil deposit up near the ice caps. It wasn't economical to mine it. 
so they put heaters down in boreholes and heated up the whole shale deposit. Drill holes let out the hot oil vapors to be condensed. They got out every bit of oil without disturbing the shale. And then the shale stayed warm for years. Farmers bulldozed soil over it and raised crops with glaciers all around them. That could be done again. They could be storing up heat back home. Then he drooped. But they can't spare power to warm up the ground under cities. They need all the power they've got to build roofs. And it takes time to build grids. Boardman snapped. Yes, if they're building regulation ones. By the time they were finished, they'd be useless. The ionization here is dropping already. But they don't need to build grids that will be useless later. They can weave cables together on the ground and hang them in the air by helicopters. They wouldn't hold up a landing ship for an instant, but they'll draw power right away. They'll even power the helis that hold them up. Of course, they'll have defects. They'll have to come down in high winds, for example. They won't be too dependable. But they can put heat in the ground to come out under roofs, to grow food by, to save lives by. What's the matter with them? Herndon stirred again. His eyes ceased to be dull and lifeless. I'll give the orders for turning off the sidewalks. And I'll send what you just said back home. They should like it. He looked respectfully at Boardman. I guess you know what I'm thinking right now, he said. Boardman flushed. He felt that Herndon was unduly impressed. Herndon didn't see that the device wouldn't solve anything. It would merely postpone the effects of a disaster. It could not possibly prevent them. It ought to be done, he said. There will be other things to be done, too. Then when you tell them to me, said Herndon, they'll get done. I'll have Ricky put this into that pulse code you explained to us and she'll get it off right away. He stood up. I didn't explain the code to her, insisted Boardman. She was already translating it when you gave her my suggestion. All right, said Herndon. I'll get this sent back at once. He hurried out of the office. This, thought Boardman irritably, is how reputations are made, I suppose. I'm getting one. But his own reaction was extremely inappropriate. If the people of Lonitu did suspend helicopter-supported grids of wire in the atmosphere, they could warm masses of underground rock and stone and earth. They could establish what were practically reservoirs of life-giving heat under their cities. They could contrive that the warmth from below would rise only as it was needed. But... 200 days to conditions corresponding to the colony planet. Then 2,000 days of minimum heat conditions.
then very, very slow return to normal temperature long after the sun was back to its previous brilliance. They couldn't store enough heat for so long. It couldn't be done. It was ironic that in the freezing of ice and the making of glaciers, the planet itself could store cold. Also, there would be monstrous storms and blizzards on Lani too as cold conditions got worse. The wire grids could be held aloft for shorter and shorter periods and each time they would pull down less power than before. Their effectiveness would diminish even faster than the need for effectiveness increased. Boardman felt even deeper depression as he worked out the facts. His proposal was essentially futile. It would be encouraging and to a very slight degree and for a certain short time it would palliate the situation on the inner planet. But in the long run its effect would be zero. He was embarrassed, too, that Herndon was so admiring. Herndon would tell Ricky that he was marvelous. She might, though cagily, be inclined to agree. But he wasn't marvelous. This trick of a flyer-supported grid was not new. It had been used on Cyril to supply power for giant peristaltic pumps emptying a polder that had been formed inside a ring of indifferently upraised islands. All I know, thought Boardman bitterly, is what somebody's showed me or I've read in books. And nobody's showed or written how to handle a thing like this. He went to Herndon's desk. Herndon had made a new graph of the solar constant observations forwarded from home. It was a strictly typical curve of the results of coinciding cyclic change. It was the curve of a series of frequencies at the moment when they were all precisely in phase. From this much one could extrapolate and compute. Boardman took a pencil, frowning. His fingers clumsily formed equations and solved them. The result was just about as bad as it could be. The change in brightness of the sun Lani would not be enough to be observed on Kent 4, the nearest other inhabited world, when the light reached there four years from now. Lani would never be classed as a variable star because the total change in light and heat would be relatively minute. The formula for computing planetary temperatures is not simple. Among its factors are squares and cubes of the variables. Worse, the heat radiated from a sun's photosphere varies not as the square or cube, but as the fourth power of its absolute temperature. Boardman's computations were not pure theory. The data came from Sol itself where alone in the galaxy there had been daily solar constant measurements for 300 years. The rest of his deductions were based ultimately on Earth observations, too. Most scientific data had to refer back to Earth to get an adequate continuity. And there could be no possible doubt about the sunspot data, because Sol and Lani were of the same type and nearly equal size. Using the figures on the present situation, Boardman reluctantly arrived at the fact that here, 
On this already frozen world, the temperature would drop gradually until CO2 froze out of the atmosphere. When that happened, the temperature would plummet until there was no really significant difference between it and that of empty space. It is carbon dioxide which is responsible for the greenhouse effect by which a planet is in thermal equilibrium only at a temperature above its surroundings as a greenhouse in sunlight is warmer than the outside air. The greenhouse effect would vanish soon on the colony world when it vanished on the mother planet. Boardman found himself thinking, if Ricky won't leave when the survey ship comes, I'll resign from the service. I'll have to if I'm to stay. And I won't go unless she does.